Daniel chapter 7. We're not going to do the whole chapter today. So uh, it's been a while. What did we do last time? So what's Daniel chapter 1? Good. Didn't want to defile himself with the king's delicacy, so he wanted to remain pure. Okay, chapter 2. The dream. And what's the dream about? The statue. Very good. Yes. With the head of gold, Babylon, etc. We'll get into that today. Chapter 3. In the fire. Good. Fire finished. Chapter 4. You're right. King Nebuchadnezzar and his humbling experience of being an animal for seven years. Grazing, eating grass. And the next chapter, chapter 5. The writing on the wall. Good. And chapter 6. Daniel in the lion's den. Okay. So basically what's happened is we've finished with the life and times of Daniel. And so basically that takes you through to the end of Daniel's life as a historical thing. So the first six chapters of Daniel are like an autobiography. is him telling you what happened over his life. Now, the last six chapters are dreams and visions that God gives Daniel during that time. Okay, so we're going to go back into Daniel's life. And this vision occurs in the first year of Belshazzar. So basically, in the last six chapters, what we find is that specifics are given. So in chapter 2, we got like a broad outline of the plan of prophecy for the end times and, and for all human history, actually. But we're going to be given detailed information about the end of the time of the Gentiles and the relationship of Israel to world history and there's references to the time of the Great Tribulation. So Daniel is setting us up to understand the rest of the Bible. Now, there's a sharp contrast between what we're going to look at today in chapter 7 and what we looked at in chapter 2. Remember the statue, the head of gold, etc. In chapter 7, the vision was given to Daniel. And in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, received the vision or dream. And in chapter 2, it's depicted as a imposing, authoritative, you know, pretty good-looking statue. That's man's view of government. That's man's view of himself. But how does God see the nations? How does God see these kingdoms? Well, he sees them as beasts. Horrible beasts. We'll get into that more later. Why does God see the nations as beasts? Because what are the nations full of? Immorality, brutality, and depravity. We basically kill each other. We kill our own kids. So basically, in God's view, we are just beasts. Okay, the nations are beasts. We're just depraved, we're brutal, and we're, as humans, immoral. And also, what we're going to find in chapter 7, it's kind of like a repeat of chapter 2, but from a different perspective and using different images, and it gives more detail. So, in here, we're going to learn about the future events, and this chapter sets us up to learn about what's going to happen in the end times. So, Daniel traces the course of four great world empires. Do you know what they are? Greek is one of them. Rome, yeah, but it's the last one. There's two more. Medes and Persians, that's three. And Babylonians, very good. So, which came first? Good, yeah. So, Babylon, Medes and Persians, Greeks, and the Romans. Okay, that's what's stated in the book of Daniel, and that's exactly what happened. It was all written before it happened. And then it all finishes with the second coming of Jesus and the inauguration of the eternal kingdom of God, which is represented as a fifth and final kingdom which comes from heaven. So, chapter 7 is one of the great prophecies of the Bible and the key to the entire program of God, prophetic program of God, from Babylon to the second coming of Christ. And as we go through, we're going to fit the other bits in, especially as later on we get into Revelation. So, it's good to understand this.
So when did Daniel receive this vision in chapter 7? Well, it says it happened in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And that's about the year 553 BC, which is 14 years before the fall of Babylon, or chapter 5, which is the writing on the wall. So it's 14 years before that event. And Nebuchadnezzar had died previously. He died in 562 BC. And so basically this happened in between chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, and chapter 5, which is the writing on the wall, Belshazzar's feast. Now, looking ahead, just to give you a sneak preview, chapter 8 happened in Belshazzar's third year, so it's two years after this. And then Daniel 9 is the next one, and that's in the first year of Darius and Mede. And then the fourth vision of Daniel, which is actually chapters 10 to 12, occurs in the third year of Cyrus. So basically these visions are spread over quite a long period of time. You know, the first one is 14 years before Belshazzar dies and the Medes and Persians take over. And then there's a vision in that first year, then there's another one, and so forth. So what we're going to look at in the next few weeks is actually four visions of Daniel spread over, I don't know, 20 or so years. So let's pray, then we'll start reading. Father, thank you for this awesome book, this book of Daniel, which shows your care for us. It points us to Jesus. It shows us more about Jesus and what you're like. And it also shows that you know the future. You are in control and you've written this down before it happened. And so we can now look back and say, well, that's true. That did happen exactly how you said it would. And you've given us information about what's going to happen in the future too. So I pray you'll give us understanding to help us in our hearts to understand what's going on and to put our faith in you and to trust that you know what's going on, that we can trust that you are in control, that you are sovereign. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just going to read right through chapter 7, and then we'll cover the first half. So it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, who had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Actually, I might stop there. We're only going to go up to verse 14, and we'll do the rest next week. What's happening? We have the vision of the four beasts. So what I'm going to do is give you an overview, and then we'll go into a bit more detail verse by verse. So back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that was interpreted by Daniel. In his dream, he saw a large statue with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, a belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. This statue represented what would happen in the future concerning Nebuchadnezzar's empire. The head of gold represented the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. The silver arms and chest represented the Medo-Persian Empire. The belly of bronze foretold the Grecian Empire. And the legs of iron predicted the rise of the Roman Empire. The feet of iron and clay represented the revived Roman Empire during the Great Tribulation. That's what we studied previously. Here in chapter 7, these four beasts of Daniel's dream represent these same kingdoms. The lion represented the Babylonian empire of Nebuchadnezzar. The reference to a man's heart being given to the beast may have been a reference to the change in Nebuchadnezzar after he was delivered from his insanity, when he was made to eat grass like an ox, like a cow, and he seemed to honor God. The bear would represent the Medo-Persian empire, raising up on one side, signaling the eventual dominance of the Medes, by the Persians. So the bear's uneven because it's an alliance and one's more powerful than the other. The three ribs in its mouth were perhaps a reference to the three major kingdoms they conquered. The leopard would represent the Greek empire of Alexander the Great who conquered the world so swiftly. It had four heads because after Alexander died, the empire was divided among four generals. The fourth beast would represent Rome. Its teeth were iron and the Roman Empire had been depicted by iron in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The ten horns correspond to the ten toes in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which represent the ten nation confederacy that will exist on the earth during the tribulation, possibly connected with the European Union. So, who knows, maybe the European Union is the start of the world empire. And Daniel goes on to describe the little horn with a big mouth. Now, who do you think that is? The Antichrist. Thank you, Kezia. And predicts his fiery demise. All of this is described in more detail in the book of Revelation and the rest of the book of Daniel as the Antichrist rises on the scene and is ultimately cast into the lake of fire. It's amazing that God can make the same predictions through a Babylonian king, a Hebrew prophet, and a New Testament apostle over the course of more than 600 years. Same thing written down. Different imagery, but the same story. But it's not difficult for a God who exists outside of time. So God is revealing the future to us. So let's jump into verse 1. So it's the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. So, you know, for those who are real interested in prophecy, you want all the details, but you don't get all the details. You just get the main facts. So just be patient and you'll have to wait until things happen to get all the details. So as one of the things of prophecy, we don't have all the details. We're given the main facts. As I said before, chapters 7 and 8 take place between chapters 4 and 5. And in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled for seven years and then he's restored. And in chapter 5, the kingdom is taken from his grandson Belshazzar the writing on the wall. Now, here is when Belshazzar has just come into power and Daniel has a vision in his first year. So basically, as we've just read, this vision here is like a commentary on chapter 2. It explains more about what happened in chapter 2, and especially next week we get into the second half of it. Now, the great sea, it says in verse Daniel spoke, saying, I saw it in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring the great sea. 
We're talking about nations. So what do you think the great sea represents? Well, let's look at the rest of the Bible because you use the Bible to interpret the Bible, right? Revelation 17, 15. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So it's quite common in Scripture to use sea to represent people. And out of those nations, out of the people, come these kingdoms, the Babylonian kingdom, the Medan Persian, etc. Now, the four winds of heaven is a bit more difficult to understand. Basically, it's talking about the sovereignty of God, the sovereign power of God in conflict with man. And when you talk about the wind in Scripture, it's about 120 times. Well over half are related to events and ideas which reflect the sovereignty and power of God. And in Daniel, the wind is consistently used to represent the sovereign power of God. And so if you think about Psalm 2, the nations rage against God, but God will defeat them. And so you have the nations striving against God and God striving against them and ultimately bringing them into subjection. And in verse 3, And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. So which one is this? Which kingdom? Which nation? It's the head of gold. Who's that? Babylonians, yeah. Okay. So the lion with the eagle's wings speaks of the Babylonian Empire. Now, in verse 17, Daniel actually tells us in the interpretation that these four beasts are four kingdoms ruling over the earth. So we don't have to guess, all right? These four beasts are four kingdoms. And the Babylonian Empire is represented by a lion and an eagle. It fits in with the head of gold in chapter 2. And it fits well with the majesty and authority of Nebuchadnezzar in his reign of the Empire of Babylon. Now, the lion and the eagle is also this image of Babylon is also found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 49, verses 19 and 22. And the archaeologists have found imagery like carvings and stuff like that of Babylon represented by a lion with eagle's wings. So it all fits nicely. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and was made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. So this is the part that speaks of what's already happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the pride of his heart, God humbled him and he became beastly. When he returned to the Lord, however, he was given a new heart and he stood on his feet once again. So that's pretty much a description of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 5, And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. Notice it says that suddenly... How long did it take for the Medes and Persians to conquer Babylon? One night. Yeah, they did it in a day. So the bear speaks of the Medo-Persian Empire, and that's synonymous with the arms and chest of silver in chapter 2. Now, why was it described as like a bear? Well, if you go back in history, they had an army of two and a half million soldiers, and what do bears do? They lumber along. They're not quick, fairly slow, So the Medes and Persians just kind of crushed people by sheer numbers. They were strong. And it says, arise and devour much flesh. And if you read history, a guy called Clark says, the slow crushing armies of the Medo-Persian Empire were well known. They simply overwhelmed their opponents with superior size and strength. The Medes and Persians are compared to a bear on account of their cruelty and thirst after blood a bear being a most ferocious and cruel animal. And Ironside says about arise and devour much flesh, the command to arise and devour much flesh indicates the extreme cruelties often practiced by the Persians and the wide extent of their conquest. And if you remember, the Persians were the ones who invented crucifixion, the most painful form of death. So not a nice kingdom to be in. You know, it's represented by silver, But when you look at what they did and how they treated people, not really good. So it's a beast. It was raised up on one side, in verse 5, and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said to it, Arise, devour much flesh. So it's the 
Medes and the Persians, and eventually the Persians would become stronger, and so the bear is lopsided. The three ribs, what could they represent? Most commentators think they represent the three great military conquests that the Mede and Persian Empire had, which is Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. So they were the three great military conquests, aside from others. Verse 6, After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So, the leopard is the Grecian Empire, and is synonymous with the belly of brass in chapter 2. So, the Medes and Persians had two and a half million troops. Alexander the Great had 35,000. His strategy was speed. So, he's described as a leopard, because how does a leopard strike? He kind of hides, he comes out of hiding, and gets him. Okay? So, very accurate. These animal descriptions of these kingdoms are actually very accurate. It's awesome. And the, the four wings, again, symbolizing speed. So Alexander, with 35,000 troops, could strike quickly and was brilliant in his strategy. And the four heads represent the four generals who took over his empire after his death. And here's a, a quote from Clark about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great quickly conquered the civilized world by age 28. Nothing in the history of the world was equal to the conquest of Alexander, who ran through all countries from Ilicrium, which is somewhere in Turkey, and the Adriatic Sea to the Indian Ocean and the River Ganges, that's in India, in 12 years subdued part of Europe and all of Asia. That's a lot of area. So just think about this from a skeptic's point of view. The Babylonian Empire was around in Daniel's day. And you could have guessed, especially in the reign of Belshazzar, that the next empire could be the Medo-Persian Empire. So you could be like a Nostradamus and think, ah, I think, I predict, you know, that the Medes and Persians will defeat the Babylonians. But how could Daniel know that the next world empire after that would be like a leopard in its rise and prominence and that it would be divided into four parts? Well, he didn't. This shows a plain principle. God knows the future and reveals certain details of the future through his prophets. It shows, it proves that God lives outside our time domain and can see the future as well as the past. And I just want to remind you that God sees a whole parade of human history from the top and not just as a single bystander watching it go past. So we're like single bystanders. We're watching time go by. But God's up top. He sees a whole lot. So when you think of prophecy, you've got to think of God being outside of time, telling us what he's seeing at every part of the parade and not just at one point. What does 2 Peter one nineteen say? We have the prophetic word confirmed. Confirmed. Which you do well to heed as a light that shines in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So prophecy will always be confirmed. It will always come true. Verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold... And then saw just means to, to gaze steadily, to watch closely. A fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and had ten horns. So, this is the Roman Empire, and is synonymous, or the same as the legs of iron in chapter 2. Now, the Roman Empire was the largest, strongest, most unified, and most enduring kingdom of them all. And also we see we had ten horns, which is the same as the ten toes in Daniel 2. And they speak of the confederation of ten nations coming out of the Roman Empire. I can prove to you later that happens in the seven-year tribulation period. Now, it had iron teeth, and it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. Now, Alexander the Great, he conquered by rapid troop movements. And he seldom crushed the people whom he conquered. He just kind of left them there. He defeated them, got tribute, but he left them there. By contrast, the Roman Empire was ruthless in its destruction of civilizations and peoples, killing captives by the thousands and selling them into slavery by the hundreds of thousands. 
So when it says here, devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet, it's a really good description of what the empire did. It's no wonder the Jews hated the Roman Empire. It's no wonder everyone hated the Roman Empire. Okay, verse 8. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. So, who is this little horn? Some people say it's the Antichrist. How do you know? Well, the horn has eyes and a mouth. So it speaks of being a person. As we go through, I hope to show you that the little horn is synonymous or the same as represents the Antichrist. And so there's going to be this ten-nation confederation in the time of the tribulation, and three of those kings, of the ten kings, those ten leaders, will rebel somehow, and they will be defeated and taken over by the Antichrist, this other ruler, the little horn. So what will the Antichrist be like? Well, from a human perspective, he's going to be incredible. And someone said this, With the intellect of Thomas Jefferson, the leadership skills of Lincoln, the global strategy of Nixon, the oratical skills of Churchill, the iron fist of Joseph Stalin, the charisma of Kennedy, talking about the leaders in the past, he will be humanly impressive. So when the Antichrist shows up, he's not going to be wearing a black cape and, you know, twiddling his moustache, you know, like a, a gangster type thing. He's going to be like a magnet. He's going to be a magnetic personality. He's going to draw people to himself. Three will resist initially, but they will be overtaken. And then what happens, he'll be in control. Now, verse 9, I watched until thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days were seated. Now, what does this mean? It's time for judgment. What's going on in America right now? The impeachment trial. They're putting the jury in place. It's time for judgment. They're going to try and judge Donald Trump. But here, it's God who's setting up his court. Okay? It's time for judgment. This is the establishment of the throne in heaven for the purpose of judgment. Now, what does this correspond to Revelation? Well, we'll find out later. It's Revelation chapter 4 and 5, where John has a vision of the throne. Now, the Ancient of Days, if you look at verse 13 in Daniel 7, it would refer to God the Father as distinct from God the Son, who is introduced in Daniel 7, 13 as the Son of Man. So to be consistent, the Ancient of Days would be God the Father, and because the Son of Man is brought before God the Father. And the Son of Man, we'll find out later, is a title for Jesus, God the Son. So, just to jump into Revelation a little bit, just to show the the similarities and contrast. When the Apostle John saw heaven, he also saw thrones, but he also saw those who sat on the thrones, the 24 elders described in Revelation 4.4. And Daniel makes no mention of these elders, these which we believe represent the church. And the church, why? Because the church was an unrevealed mystery to the Old Testament saints. So a little bit of diversion here. What is a mystery in the New Testament? It's something that God had hidden from the people in the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you two mysteries in the New Testament. And the first one is found in Ephesians, and it's the church. It's Ephesians, I'm just going to read the last part of verse 3 and verse 6. So remember, when the New Testament talks about mystery, it's talking about something that's hidden in the Old Testament and then revealed in the New So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3 and 6. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. Okay? Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Now, there's another example of a mystery, and that is Colossians one twenty seven. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people, but God didn't live in people. It wasn't revealed until the New 
Testament. So, it makes sense that the church, the people sitting on the thrones, was not revealed to Daniel at this time. Or it's not recorded. And the Ancient of Days was seated, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure like wool. So, the white garments and white hair stress the eternal character of God the Father. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. This is a spectacular sight, but you want to be on God's side. (laughs) Because this, as I said, the court has been set up for judgment. We're going to get into that in a minute. It's judgment. It's beautiful, but it reflects the fierce heat of God's judgment. Imagine lava flowing down a volcano and just destroying everything in its path. Okay, That's what God's judgment is like. Now, I've got a couple of references. The first one is Isaiah 66, describing the judgment of God in terms of fire. It's Isaiah 66, verses 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots, like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. And another verse is in Psalm 97, verses 2 and 3, and it tells us in verse 2 that righteousness and judgment are the foundation of his throne. And in verse 3 it says, A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. So this picture of fire is a picture of judgment. Now it says its wheels were burning fire. It's, it's a bit hard to understand that phrase. Some commentators say that the ancient Eastern world royal thrones are often on wheels, but it could just be it represents the endless activity of God. So the next phrase is a thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. So who are the thousands? A thousand thousands. Well, they are the ones who are ministering to him. They are serving God. So who would this be? The angels. Okay. That's pretty clear, and you can go in Revelation and see the angels before the throne too. But then it says, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. This is standing before him. What's he there for? For judgment. So this describes humanity standing before God in judgment. And the next phrase says, the court was seated and the books were opened. Now, if you're not saved, you should be shaking by now. Because this is going to happen. The court was seated and the books were opened. The Bible describes several books before God, and it could be any one of these or a combination. So, what books do we have? Well, the Book of the Living in Psalm 69.28, the Book of Remembrance in Malachi 3.16, and the Book of Life, and there's lots of verses for this, Philippians 4.3 and lots in Revelation. I'm just going to read one from Revelation and show that this book is actually used at the time of judgment. So it's Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 and 15. And it says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. So think back to Daniel. The people are standing before him, ten thousands times ten thousands. And books were opened. Sounds like Daniel, doesn't it? And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things written in the books. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So the first people to go there were the Antichrist and the false prophet. And you read that in Revelation 19, which we'll read in a bit later on. But the judgment also refers to the judgment on the nations, which includes all the judgments described in Revelation chapters 6 through 18. So it's an overall picture of what God is going to do. Verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So the Antichrist as we're going to read in Revelation in a sec, is going to be cast alive into the lake of fire along with the false prophet at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. 
And here in Daniel, it's saying the same thing. So it's telling us what's going to happen, and you can match it up with what happens in Revelation to find out more detail. So Revelation gives us more information about what's happening here. So the rest of the unbelieving dead will not go to the lake of fire until after the great white throne judgment, which is at the end of the thousand years. Okay, So the false prophet, the Antichrist, going at the end of the seven years, and then there's a thousand years, and then there's a great white throne judgment, and then all the unsaved people, all the unbelievers will be judged, and they will go to the lake of fire. Now, I'd like you to open in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, and we're going to read right through to the end of chapter 20, because what we have is a parallel version of what's going on in Daniel. And I just want to help you to see that these two things are linked. So if you turn to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, so where we're starting, what we're up to in the book of Revelation is it's the end of the seven-year tribulation period. And the first part that we're going to read describes the battle of Armageddon. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Now, who's that? It's Jesus. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, that's righteousness, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So we go up in the rapture, and guess what? We come back with Jesus at the end of the seven years. And we come. Now, what's going to happen? Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That's for the thousand years. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that ye may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army, that's Jesus and us. Then the beast was captured, that's the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. That's the Antichrist and the false prophet were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. This is at the end of the tribulation period. All the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, that's in the center of the earth, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Go back to Daniel. What's just been set up? Thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So those who died in the tribulation, the tribulation saints, those who were born again in the church age, which is now, we are a part of the first resurrection. And it all started with Jesus. He was the first fruits of the first resurrection. 
blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So here we have us come back with Christ and we reign with him for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead, they're still in Hades or what we call hell. They're not in the lake of fire yet. That comes later, as we're going to read. Verse 7 in Revelation 20. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, together them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, that's Jerusalem, and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. This is the most anticlimactic battle you could ever hope for, you know. In the millennium period, there's going to be people who believe and people who don't. There's still free choice. The people who don't believe, they're going to be rounded up by Satan. They're deceived and they surround Jerusalem and they've got all these whatever weapons they've got. You think he had learned from the last time, right? And God says, oh, that's enough. Fire, done. That was pretty easy. So, (laughs) and there we go. And then it says in verse 10, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Remember, they went there at the end of the seven years, a thousand years before. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne. So this is the end of the thousand years now, right? And the great white throne judgment. And him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was... No place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Where did we just read that? Daniel chapter 7. Okay? We just read that in Daniel chapter 7. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades delivered the dead which were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So I hope you can see the connection between what we're reading in Daniel and what happens in the book of Revelation, how the Revelation is based on the framework that we have in Daniel, the four kingdoms and then the fifth being Jesus' kingdom. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. So the sound of the pompous words, so verse 11, Daniel chapter 7, the sound of the pompous words which the horn, the Antichrist, was speaking. So the final human dictator we commonly call the Antichrist will be characterized by his boastful and blasphemous speech. Now, does it say that in Revelation? Guess what? I think it does. Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's three and a half years. That's the last half of the tribulation. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So, again, what you read in Daniel is the same as what you read in the book of Revelation. Daniel 7 verse 12, And as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So, this is interesting. The rest of the beasts, remember the kingdoms, right? The federation of ten kingdoms there, or areas or rulers. They had their dominion taken away. They're no longer in power. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So, during the millennium, it appears that the nations will remain. So if you lived in Africa, Africa would still be there. If you lived in America, America would still be there. If you lived in Australia, Australia would still be there. I'm not sure if they're going to still be called those same names, but those people groups will still be there. We as Christians and the tribulation saints, those who are faithful or had been faithful and have believed and accepted Jesus' gift of salvation, we will be helping Jesus rule the nations with a rod of iron. So they had their dominion taken away. So this is an important phrase, talking about the transition from human dominion, human government, to 
divine government, God ruling. And this happens as the Son of Man, Jesus, comes and exercises dominion over the earth. So the dominion is taken away from men, the government is taken away from men, and Jesus rules instead. So the Son of Man, Jesus, succeeds the reign of the fourth beast, specifically the ten kings, or ten toes or horns of the Roman Empire. And in chapter 2, if you go back a bit, this was graphically displayed as a rock being cut without hands and striking the image on the ten toes and completely destroying it. It then became a large mountain that covered the whole earth. So the final kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is one that covers the whole earth. Now I'm just going to go back to Daniel chapter 2, verses 43 and 44, and show you that this last event happens when they have this federation of ten kings. So it's on the screen there. It says, As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Verse 44, And in the days of these kings. So these ten kings, have they happened yet? They can't have, because it says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Jesus has not come back yet. The ten kings are future. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. So we have in Daniel chapter 2, it's clear. In the days of these kings, the ten toes, the ten horns, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So this comforting truth that Christ will eventually come back to claim the victory already won is repeated here in chapter 7. So, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, why the Son of Man? Where do you find that phrase? Eighty times. Who calls himself by this phrase? Jesus, yeah, in the Gospels. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And he receives the dominion, the government, over the world previously held by the beasts, which are these nations or earthly kingdoms, and his reign will be permanent. Continuing in verse 13, And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Remember the Ancient Days as a father. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is the Son of Man, comes to the Father, and he's given the kingdom, just like it says in the New Testament. Now, it says his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Now, the reign of Jesus is not just a thousand years, it's permanent. Jesus will rule over the earth before it is remade, when Satan is bound for a thousand years. So the millennial period, Jesus rules, then Satan is released, he's judged, Everyone is judged who's not a believer. And then, I haven't read it in Revelation, but we'll read it another time. We get a new heavens and a new earth, and Jesus continues to rule. And so his dominion is an everlasting dominion. So just to finish with an exhortation, Jesus' kingdom is the rock in chapter 2 that fills the whole earth. And I'm just going to read that one. It's Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, the wind carrying them away, so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. Now, where else do you find in Scripture about Jesus ruling the earth? Well, Psalm 2, Psalm 2, verse 69, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So Jesus is the one who will come rule and reign. And there's a beautiful passage in Isaiah which says the same thing. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 to 10. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked, like read in Revelation. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Now we come to the millennial period in this Isaiah passage. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. So as Christians, we have hope. We don't see Jesus ruling and reigning right now. But by faith, we believe that Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. We experience that victory internally, victory over sin. And we have had our sins forgiven been saved from the penalty and the power of sin. But one day, Jesus will come back and claim the victory he has already won and we will be with him. So the application for us is that we should not lose hope, but should instead hold fast, no matter what our situation or circumstances. I'm just going to read Hebrews to finish. Hebrews 10.23-25, it says, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. True? Whatever God says in the Bible will come to pass. So what's the application for us now? What do we do with this? Well, yeah, God keeps his promises. What should this spur us to do? Verse 24 says, Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now, that the day of his return is drawing near. So Father, thank you for the passage you've been reading. Lord, it's a lot of information and, and there's different viewpoints, different ways of looking at it. But Lord, the main point is that you are coming back. You have told us what is happening. You are coming back. You are going to rule and reign and we'll be with you. And Lord, we're looking forward to that day. And what do you ask us to do? You ask us to think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And especially as the day of your return is drawing near. So Lord, help us to do that, Father. Prophecy is not just about knowledge. It's, just, it's not just about figuring out what's going to happen. Prophecy should spur us on to realize that the time is short and we need to encourage each other in our faith, to love you and to love each other and to be witnesses to this world. Help us not to lose sight of the big picture, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.